This episode is brought to you by Cox Home Life. Cox helps make your home smarter. And now you can pull up your home life cameras on your TV with your contour voice remote and some simple voice commands. To learn more, visit cox.com slash this is home. Electrocast. And Sammy pulled me on stage to help him sing a song from his current record. And I can honestly say the energy that I felt from the crowd was visceral. And I and I was frightened, actually. It was overwhelming. I wanted to cry. <laughs> wow. um, but in that sort of moment, I realized you could see also, it, it's kind of like a drug. It, it's so powerful. You could see why... You know, artists and performers love to be on the stage because you're you're feeling the the pulsing of the crowd and and quite frankly the adoration that's coming at you. Okay, it basically comes down to this: you have to forget everything your culture has told you about being a woman, and then you can begin your day. Hi, I'm Jill Sorensen, and you're listening to the new feminist podcast, The Place for Common Sense Feminism. Some people are just magnificent humans. They're kind, brilliant, empathetic, incredibly accomplished, yet down to earth and humble, and they always leave the world better than they found it. My guest today, Cynthia Sexton, she is one of those people. When Cynthia arrived to the U.S. from Scotland as a young woman, she had no idea that one day she would become a leader and trailblazer in the music industry in the United States. Her resume is impressive. Currently, EVP of Music Curation, Global Synchronization for Universal Music Group. She served as EVP of Partnerships and Content, as Executive Vice President, Global Brand Partnerships, Licensing and Synchronization for EMI Music, Head of Business Affairs at Virgin Records, and much more. She succeeded as one of the few women in an industry dominated by men. According to the USC Annenberg Inclusion Statistics, only 2.6% of producers credited in 2019 were women. Only 12.5% of songwriters credited were women. Only 22% of all artists were female. And 0% winners of Producer of the Year. Acutely aware of the gender inequities in the business, she's helping to give women a voice. Cynthia is a mentor for She Is Music, a global organization dedicated to furthering women from all cultural and economic backgrounds to careers in music in the hopes of building a more equal future for music. I sat down with Cynthia to learn more. So Cynthia, I am so excited to have you on the new Feminist Podcast and I can't wait to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, so a little bit about my background, my childhood. I grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. I did not go to college. My family was too poor, needed me to go out and work. Very early, probably when I was 26, I'd made the decision way before that, but when I was 26, I actually moved to Australia. Lived there for a couple of years, traveled all over Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Bangkok, you name it, I lived there. 
And then my older sister had in that period of time met an American, was marrying him, wanted me to come be her bridesmaid. And that is how I ended up in the United States. It was <laughs> such a weird fluke. I came to be my sister's bridesmaid and thought, this isn't too bad. I like this. So I just decided at that point to just stay here. So you moved to Los Angeles? I moved to yeah, yeah. directly to Los Angeles. And then I had to kind of wrangle with the um, how do I get a job and, and, and how do I get here legally and all of that good stuff. And ended up working for a entertainment law firm. And doing what? Well, so here's what happened. My skills were fairly basic. I knew how to type really well because it was funny. Growing up in Scotland, my mother insisted that I learned to what was then called touch type. And so I had great typing skills, really high speed. (laughs) I didn't, as I said, I didn't go to college. So my actual skills were limited. So what was really open to me then was secretarial kind of skills. So I joined a law firm um, as a secretary, which they were called secretaries in those days, to a fairly prominent lawyer in the music business. And that's how I started my career in the music business. I was very fortunate, very quickly thereafter, two things happened. One was that the older of the two brothers of the law firm decided to leave the law firm. And it was a, a really good music practice. We, you know, there were Graham Nash's publishing was there, Emily Harris, a lot of well-known artists had their catalogs or were represented by the lawyers at that law firm. Mm-hmm. And so when the, the senior lawyer left, the older brother, he went to work in the video game business. He ended up moving to Activision and I ended up being uh, asked to become a paralegal there and start to manage and administer all the music publishing catalogs of many big artists. So again, Graham Nash, Steve Miller, Emily Harris, and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, I was doing all this publishing administration. On the other hand, I was learning a lot about the video game business because we were the law firm of counsel for Activision early on. So I was learning about licensing deals. You know, if you're a video game company uh, and you want to do a deal with the NFT, fell, right? Or you want to do a deal with name whoever it is you want to license uh, uh, the uh, the IP. And from I was in the middle of that early on. So I was learning all this business of licensing on the one hand, and I was very deep into the nitty gritty of music publishing inside that law firm. Then the third thing that happened probably a few years later through the course of that, the, the younger uh lawyer was on a business trip to the UK and he came back with a new client. None of the lawyers wanted to take any more work on. And when I heard who the client was, I I was like, I'll take on. And that client was Virgin Records. And so that's how I started learning about the recorded music business, not just the music publishing business. And I became somewhat of the point person between the law firm and Virgin, the reason the law firm was representing Virgin was really the licensing of artists from the Virgin label in the UK to American labels. So UB40 to AM Records, Peter Gabriel to Geffen Records, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So it was more licensing deals in those days. We didn't have a record label for Virgin in the United States, nor a publishing company at that point in time. So, so fast forward to 
Now, lots of experience in the licensing business, lots of experience in the music publishing business. Richard Branson decides to start a record label in the United States. And I had been working very closely with all the executives at Virgin in London for years. And I was inside their law firm. They decided that I would be a good candidate to be their first head of business affairs. And when I look back on that, it, it, it's almost a joke. <laughs> I really wasn't equipped to become not only a head of business affairs, but starting a business affairs department from scratch with no prior knowledge of what a business affairs department does at a record label. Um, but having the law firm still be of counsel and them helping me through that. Um, so I ended up being probably, I don't know, the fifth, sixth, seventh employee of Virgin Records. Wow, that is amazing. So it was very exciting times. You know, we were a British company. Uh, Richard Branson was the boss. Um, We were starting everything from scratch. It was very exciting. We signed artists like Lenny Kravitz and Paula Abdul. A lot of our acts were still being licensed now. Instead of being licensed from Virgin in London to AM or Geffen, those artists were being licensed, not even licensed, but released by the US Virgin label. So we were working on all sorts of great acts out of the United Kingdom, but also starting to sign our own artists in the US and I was the head of business fair. So I was in the middle of every one of those deals. So it was a very exciting time. Then Richard Branson decided he was doing such a good job on the recorded music side that we decided to open a music publishing company. And I was tapped to also be the head of business affairs wow. at a publishing company simultaneously with being Jesus. head of business affairs at the record company. Now, when I say that, sounds like a very grandiose job. That you know, it, it, it was a lot of work. Uh, I was learning so much very quickly. Uh, it was very stressful. Um, I did have the law firm to lean on constantly um, because I didn't have the knowledge that I maybe should have had then. But there's nothing like being thrown into the the deep end of a pool. You learn very very quickly how to sink or swim. So I worked in that role as head of business affairs for both the record company Virgin Records and Virgin Music Pub- Publishing for about five years. I, I want to ask the question, yeah. Cynthia. You know, you have this big career. Did you ever think you would go into this industry growing up? Well, this just like got thrown. Oh, no, I worked in the oil business in the UK because when I was, you know, of age, North Sea oil had just been discovered. You'll know a lot about that, Jill, coming from the Nordics. Um, Oil was the business. And I worked for British National Oil, BP, Burma Oil in the early days. So coming to America and then working in the music business was 360 from what I had been used to. Wow. Anyway, that's really my career up to being a head of business affairs, a major record company and a major music publishing company. I mean, that's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any mentors early in your career? And Uh, were any of them women? No and no, sadly. Uh, And um, I'm sure maybe we'll talk about this a little later, Jill. Um, It's one of the reasons why I'm working in an organization called She Is a Music, which we can probably talk about a little later, mentoring young women, because I did not have the benefit of any mentors at all. I I would say my one mentor was the guy who was the lawyer 
at the original law firm because he was the only person I was learning anything from. He was a smart, great lawyer, but he wasn't a mentor in that sense. It was pretty much you'll figure it out. Whether you're a woman or a man, I think that you lose out on so much by not having access to somebody who can help mentor you through you know, not only your career, but just with some life tips as you go along. So most of the people around you were then men? 95%. Wow. <laughs> About, yeah, in those days. So, you know, let's be clear, we're talking 30 some odd years ago. But yes, it was definitely, there were really not many women. The women that were there were, as we all know, were in lower level they were the assistants. They, they weren't the executives. They weren't certainly not in the boardroom in those days. So when did you feel your career was really taking off, that you had reached your professional stride? Well, I think probably like most women. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I suffer from imposter syndrome, right? I uh. You never, ever, I never, ever, 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 ever. And this is for real thought I had arrived. I mean, I, again, coming from a working class family, I always just worked really hard and then somebody would promote me and then I would really work hard again and I would be promoted. I didn't ever think, aha, I'm here. But there was a big transition in my life when I decided, going back to Virgin for a second, that I no longer wanted to be in business affairs. I didn't want to be haggling with lawyers all day long. And I felt that then there was a way to drive revenue for publishing companies and record labels outside the normal way that you make drive revenue or make money. I mean, it was sell records in those days. That's what record labels do. Publishers collect performance income and in those days, mechanical income from the sale of records. There were no other kinds of revenue that were being driven. And so I literally was in London and handed my notice in and was asked, well, why was I leaving Virgin? I said, because I don't want to be a business affairs person anymore. And was asked by one of my bosses, well, what do you want to do? And that was a good lesson because I realized, and I say this to people always, don't go with a problem or an issue if you don't have some solution, right? And so <laughs> I didn't know what the solution was. I was ready to just stop working in an industry that I'd come to love just because I didn't like that job. It was just too, it wasn't for me anymore. It was too stressful. Uh, I had learned everything I felt stupidly that I knew and I wanted to do something different. And so I was asked to go away and come back. And if I had some plan to do something different, Virgin didn't want to lose me as an executive, which was wonderful for me to hear that. But then I was then in a position to try to figure out what my career should be. And in those days, what's called film and TV sync, so driving revenue from film and television. So what that means for those who don't know what film I know nothing about this industry. So in, in the early days of movies, music in the movies was always scored by a film composer. And there wasn't so much licensing of music into films in the early days. And if you just look back at some old movies, you don't hear current songs in them. At that time, that was just starting to happen. But the only interaction that was going on between the film studios and the labels was when somebody 
at the studio, a music supervisor, a person who was hired by the, the studio to put music in the film, um, it, it was really based on that music supervisor knowing the piece of music that they wanted to license. And then they would come to the business affairs department at the label. And then we would, in those days, put our thinking caps on, having no clue what the value of that would be and come up with a number to license it. But there was no, um, wow. it, it was literally a, a, a guess, a wild guess what that fee should be. And so all of that film and TV sync clearance was sitting under business fairs at the time. And I started to think, well, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a more proactive way. If you're sitting inside a label and you know what your new releases are that are coming out, and if you know your repertoire, why aren't we talking to those music supervisors and saying, hey, instead of the song that you want to license that maybe is too expensive, maybe there's another song or another artist, or maybe an artist could write a song. Um, and so the whole idea of it not just being a one-way street of a music supervisor understanding the track they wanted, and then it was just a negotiation of how much that song would cost. It was a two-way street of setting up departments inside record labels that became known as sync departments and they still exist where there were creative people and clearance people so mm -hmm. clearance people were the ones who gave the quotes on how much it would cost and the creative people were working day in and day out with the label a and r people looking at release schedules sitting looking at movies working with music supervisors directors and others and actively and very proactively pitching music for film and tv so that was the the first iteration of what is a new way for us to drive more revenue mm -hmm. in an area that we made a little bit of money in but it was very passive and make that proactive wow the second piece of that was what else can we do to drive revenue and now but in the old days you could buy, you know, I'm making this scenario up, five boxes of cornflakes, pull the top off, mail them in and get a CD. Now, before that, it used to be, you, you know, even prior to that happening, it was you, uh -huh. you, you tore the box off and there was a little plastic figure or something in there. So this whole notion that we would start to use music um, in some premium fashion was new. So we started to make deals with big companies to reward their customers in some way with music. Oh, and so okay. that then built what was called the special markets divisions of big music companies. So I built a special markets division for Virgin Records, which had just been bought by EMI and created this special markets division that did two things. One, it drove revenue to the film and television community and it also drove revenue and worked closely with big brands. And you did all this, all these original ideas, and you still felt like an imposter? <laughs> I still do. I, I still do. Because that, I honestly, I think that that's the nature of, of many people. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and maybe that's what keeps you driven. Because I think if you feel like you've made it, you get complacent. And for me, it was as much about, oh, let's try that. Maybe that can work. And I was in an environment, I was very lucky to be in an environment where I had bosses who allowed me um, to try things. To like, well, go see if that can work. Well, try it. Like, why not? What do we have to lose? And so I was very fortunate. And I'm a curious person naturally. So I would just try things and see what would work. And wow. a lot of them did. That's, an, that's amazing. 
So you've been part of the Universal Music Group environment for most of your career. Can you describe your experiences rising through the ranks of such a large and influential conglomerate? Just so everybody knows this history. So Virgin Records was bought by EMI, which is a big British company. And ultimately, EMI was bought by Universal Music Group. So my career started at Virgin, then moved to EMI. Then actually, I started my own company in the middle of that. And then I was hired by Universal, which the wonderful thing for me was when I was hired at Universal, I had all this historical knowledge of the EMI and Virgin catalogs and artists because I had a lot of institutional knowledge from there. So, mm-hmm. so, so to be clear, my tenure at Universal has now been, I think, 10 or 11 years, just, mm-hmm. just a newbie at Universal. And then and most of that time before that was at EMI and, um, and at Virgin Records. But to answer your question, um, it is very, very interesting to sit inside a massive multinational corporation um, yeah. in a it, that's not selling widgets in the way that you, you think of it, right? Our, we don't have widgets. I mean, you, you could have called CDs widgets, but our artists, they're the most important thing to us. Without an artist, we have nothing. You yeah. don't have a back catalog of the Beatles without the Beatles. You know, you don't have new records by the weekend without the, the weekend, you don't have a way to drive revenue through film and TV without having the music to do that. So it, it all starts with artists now, and it always will, no matter how you know people characterize it, it is artists first. And so working in a big multinational company where we don't deal in widgets, we deal in human capital, human beings, mm-hmm. both our executives and our artists, most importantly, is wonderful. It is wonderful. And, and and so the interaction with creative people all day long for me personally is... You'd be is, so good at it. Yeah. It is, it is wonderful. Um, it used to be in the old days, it, it didn't feel so much like you were working uh, in that, well, who doesn't want to get up in the morning and get your little business suit on in those days um, and go sit with an artist or hear a new record or whatever that was. Um, what I will see is the changes that have occurred when you work with a big, big company like Universal and in a good way is that in the old days, it was much more gut. You signed an artist solely based on gut. Everything was done when he's got good ears. Those kind of characterizations, now those are still as important, but when you're in a big company, you now start to have access to data and insights Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff that now exists for us and that we do an incredible job of. So what we look at when we're looking to sign artists and when we're driving marketing plans is you're balancing always creative NR being the most important, but it's complemented by a whole bunch of other things that we never used to think about, quite frankly, and we certainly didn't have access to and nowadays we do. So it's more fascinating. There's just more things to learn. So for me, uh, as a a person who's been in the industry for a long time, I'm fascinated to be learning again. Um, When you think you've gone to the point where you sort of know a fair bit, suddenly you're learning about TikTok or or things like that. 
you know, we're trying to wrap our heads around. Um, so it is actually a very exciting time to be inside music, the music business, and certainly inside Universal Music Group because it is an incredible company to work for. Now, sidebar, you said you you loved working with the artists. So you were dealing with the Beatles? I didn't deal directly with a Beatle. I did work very closely with Apple Corps, the Beatles mm-hmm. company. Um, and actually, I did the Beatles deal with rock bands. The, the crown jewel of EMI's catalog mm-hmm. It was for EMI. It certainly still is for Universal Music Group. And I've worked with that repertoire for many, 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 many years and proudly so because it is That's amazing. unbelievable. Yes, I've been lucky enough to work uh, in and around the Beatles, work on deals for the Beatles and to work with them. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. So what advice would you give your day one self, the Cynthia who was just starting out? Ooh, day one self. Well, I guess I have to give the same advice I give to the young women who either I'm mentoring, uh, who are currently in the music business are the ones thinking about coming in, ask a lot of questions. I know I grew up again in a way where I was kind of like, you know, don't be a bother. Don't, don't ask too many questions. I know as a very senior executive that I actually really appreciate when young people ask me questions, when they're genuinely interested in learning from me, when they they want to um, further their career. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of maybe intimidation that still lives where it's like, oh, I, you know, he's a president or she's a senior vice president or I can't possibly ask them a question. They'll think I'm stupid. And, and actually, it doesn't really work that way. It's actually the other way around. It's like, Know that it's okay to ask those questions, especially early in your career, because the assumption is that you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are quite happy and willing to explain things to you. It only gets more difficult if you wait until you're 10 years into your career and then you're asking what might be perceived (laughs) as a good question. Um, But early on is... I would have said I didn't ask a lot of questions. I, I, I would try to figure things out myself. Um, which inevitably just takes longer and it's just more painful on yourself than if I had asked more questions early on in my career and, and not been so fearful about doing so. So you were also the president of your own company, Sexton Inc. What was your experience of running your own business? Well, it was very interesting because it became very clear that EMI was going to be sold. None of us knew who the buyer was, and we had been through many years of private equity and all sorts of stuff, and it was definitely time to sort of move on. So I left the company and thought, well, okay, this is an opportunity for me to see what it's like to be an entrepreneur and do my own thing. I was very fortunate that a couple of clients that I had been working with at EMI asked me to consult for them when I left EMI. So I started with two clients very quickly. One of them was Logitech. (laughs) Now, Logitech was very interesting because you might think for most people, what's Logitech got to do with music? And in actual fact, they had, uh, apart from their peripheral, you know, keyboards and mouse and all of that stuff, they did have speakers. They did have in-ear monitors that artists use on stage. They were starting to develop a headphone company. And 
they were interacting with artists and labels, but they didn't really understand how to do it properly. And they were frustrated by it because they weren't really getting their sort of money's worth of these relationships. And it was largely because they just didn't understand how music companies works, what it means to be in cycle. They release a record. The label is marketing and promoting that record. And oftentimes they go on to tour. So they're in cycle. They're in the market. And when they're in the market, people know they're there. You know, when there's a new Ariana Grande record released, new Lenny Kravitz record released. And so they hired me to really help them evaluate some of the deals that they had, both with artists, but also how to do a better job of using the equity that their brand had with the equity that an artist brings to it. And, and, and that was actually really interesting for me because I was then working with spending time with a big uh, computer peripheral company called Logitech and, and to help them build their in-ear company and their headphone company. They were my biggest clients. And that was a whole great experience. I will say, just to conclude that, is what I discovered about myself was the interesting thing. I realized that I'm entrepreneurial and I think that way, but I am much better off being inside a company. I like the camaraderie. And I knew that I was at a crossroads where I'd have to think about either going back inside a company or I'd have to actually build my own business, which meant it would take me further away from the things that I like to do because I would have to worry about payroll and those things. And just as that was happening, Universal Music Group called me and asked me to come in. And that's why I went back to the music business proper after that couple of years of running my own company. What is the most amazing moment you've had in your business that you will always remember? Well, um, I have to say I've been lucky to have a few of them. Okay. One was seeing my husband on stage. He produced Live 8 in Philadelphia. Wow. And um, he was literally, I was sitting right in front of him while he was on the stage um, concluding the event, which had a million people attend. I've never been so proud of my husband and just so in awe of being with a million other people watching this amazing. Oh, that gives me goosebumps. <laughs> something incredible to do good in the world. I would say the other two were um, having a meeting with Yoko Ono in the apartment in New York, which was just, I just kept pinching myself. I just, I couldn't believe I was there. Um, so that was definitely a highlight. And I would say, the last one was something that, that happened just as a, a sheer fluke, but it helped me realize how artists, why they like to tour. Sammy Hagar was backstage at a, a Sammy Hagar uh, event, and through my husband, we knew Sammy. Uh, and Sammy pulled me on stage to help him sing a song from his current record. And I can honestly say the energy that I felt from the crowd was visceral. And I and I was frightened. Actually, it was overwhelming. I wanted to cry. <laughs> wow. um, but in that sort of moment, I realized you could see. Also, it it's kind of like a drug. It, it's so powerful. You could see why you know artists and performers love to be on the stage because you're you're feeling the the pulsing of the crowd and and quite frankly the adoration that's coming at you. Um, it was powerful, and I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Wow. Wow. 
Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. What is the worst case of sexism you've ever experienced? Well, I'm going to be really honest here. So working for a British company early on in my career, a lot of things that were just acceptable would never be acceptable today, right? And I I mean things like just off-color jokes and guys saying off-color things. And, And when you grew up in the UK, at least in those times, that didn't seem so bizarre. Um, Now uh, it would be not tolerated. But I would say that the off-color jokes and those things aside, I never actually witnessed or experienced personally a real overt sexual um, overture at all. What I did see were things like this. And this is probably the best answer I could give you that years ago, I was in a boardroom with me and all men in the boardroom. And, and it was in London, the meeting. And if you know anything about the UK, people drink tea, usually at 10 and four, (laughs) it was four o'clock and it was tea time. And the tea lady, because it was only a tea lady, never a tea man came in and she left the teapots and the cups and all of that stuff. Um, there for us to go up and help ourselves. And I was sitting, just finishing up some notes. I was dying for a cup of tea, but I was just, you know, finishing up my notes. And then I looked up and all all the guys were just kind of sitting there. And it struck me in that moment, they're waiting for me to get up and have a cup of tea because the minute I get up, (laughs) and so I kept writing my notes for a little bit longer just to see, and sure enough, nobody got up. And I got up, got a cup of tea, and sure enough, while you're up there, <laughs> can you get me? And I blew a gasket. Oh my <laughs> God. Gasket. So there were definitely things like that always, but I can honestly say, and I know that, that I'm probably in the minority, um, I didn't actually experience overt, no, no, not sexual overture directly to me, nor did I witness it. But there were definitely, you know, some of them were cultural things, just the, happened working for you know a British company in those days um but yeah I mean I've I've been not witnessed directly but heard all sorts of horror stories and know them to be true and and you know and and not just the music business and and every business as, as we know and hopefully that is changing but it will take some time to to change in the way we really need it to change yeah, well, the culture is always changing. So what yeah. was sexism? People weren't aware. They were unaware that they were sexist, right. you know? Right. You, by the um, way, on both sides, quite frankly. In the exactly. Yeah. We, we, we just play our roles, yeah, you know? exactly right. It was role-playing. You're absolutely right, Jill. Right. So is A&R still a man's game? Well, I would say that it is changing rapidly, for sure. At our company, we have an amazing head of A&R. She's so beyond head of A&R Republic Records, Wendy Goldstein, who is, you know, the weekend, Ariana Grande. I mean, she's signed big, big acts uh, and is 
one of not a handful, more than a handful, but 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 Wendy is just the sort of shining beacon that it is absolutely possible not only to be a junior AR girl, um, mm-hmm. but to be a powerhouse uh AR executive in one of the most important record labels in the business with hit after hit after hit under her belt. So I would definitely say it, it still is but it's changing very, very quickly. And it's certainly changing inside the company that, uh, that I worked for rapidly. What do you, what is the percentage men versus women in that is, do you have any uh, idea? Any in our specifically, do you mean, or, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, what? it'd be hard for me to say right now. I mean, I would say it's still high Jill. I'd probably say, and this would be a complete guess. Mm-hmm. It's probably about 70, 30 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, it's changing quickly. If, I, if you'd asked me even three years ago, that number would have been much higher in favor of male. So it's definitely changing quickly. Again, long way to go. But when you, when you have when you have you know young women and men who can look at somebody like Wendy and see a woman can stand her ground, you know, mm-hmm. face and deliver acts like the acts I just mentioned, then you know there's absolutely a place for women and an equal place for women in AR and and quite frankly in most other areas of the business. Mm-hmm. So you started a mentoring program for women. Can you tell us about that? I was asked to start the mentorship program under She as the Music, but based on an Annenberg study, which looked at the music business and quite frankly saw what we all knew anyway, was that there's complete inequality in our business. Women were just not holding positions of any kind of of status and and certainly in certain areas of the business, certainly producing and engineering and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so because of that study, um, Alicia Keys and Jody Gershon, who's the chairman of uh, our publishing company, got together and started an organization called She Is The Music. So yeah. this was such a, an, an easy fit for me and something I really wanted to do and was delighted to do so. As I had said to you earlier on, I was never really mentored in my career. I've spent a lot of time doing that naturally. I love doing it. We're starting to really get some traction here and it's very exciting. So can you identify key women decision makers in your industry? Yes, actually, quite easily, because I worked for one of them. <laughs> it's a funny way I worked for two of them. <laughs> Michelle Anthony. Wait, you are one. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to one. Relative to these women, I'm definitely way down the food chain. So Michelle Anthony is my boss, uh, and Michelle mm-hmm. is one of the few women who has had a very high-level career in the music business for a very, very long time. You mentioned Michelle's name in the business. Everybody knows Michelle Anthony. She's incredible, and she is my boss, and she's a very high-level executive at Universal Music Group. And the other is Jody Gershon, who, as I said, in, in some ways I work for both of them because as Jody is the chairman of Universal Music Publishing, which is one of the world's largest publishing companies. Um, mm-hmm. And she, as I said, started She Is The Music. So by virtue of that, I guess I work for Jody too. So I work for those two. But, you know, they, you know, in, in the early days, people like Sylvia Rowan, there, there are some women, not a lot, but again, you know, over time, there are there are more coming along, and it's really incumbent 
on people like me to make sure that these mentorship programs are successful so that we keep bringing more young women into the music business that we can mentor and train, not only past being, you know, assistants, but really into meaningful roles, whether they are creative roles and being an A&R or, or an artist or a songwriter, but all the way through to those who want to be in the boardroom. So we have to start young, we have to train and we have to mentor and hopefully a few more years, we'll start to see many, many more women at meaningful positions inside the music business. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's, that's great. So if you're a super talented female singer-songwriter over 35 today, and you want a career in the music industry, what does she do? Is it impossible? And why in that case? Well, I would separate singer and songwriter for a second, if I, if I may. Okay. Because... And this is a lot to do culturally with the U.S. and its obsession with looks and youth and all of those things, right? If you're a songwriter behind the scenes, you can be 105 if you write good songs. doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, you can. And there are amazing women songwriters of all ages. And so I think as a songwriter, as long as you're a talented songwriter, you can be in the business for a long time and you can enter the business probably a little later than you could because it's not driven by you having to be in front of a camera or any of those things, right? So so that's my point of view on songwriting. And in terms of an artist who's going to be in front of the camera making videos, um, touring and all of those things, especially in the United States. And I have to say that as a as a Brit and a person who's traveled the world, we are still, in my humble opinion, uh, obsessed with looks and the Barbie obsession, I guess uh, I'll say a little bit. And so it can definitely be more difficult if you don't have good looks and you're not young and you don't have that stuff going for you. So what you generally see are artists who, if they're young, they become artists early on and they maybe go on to be superstar artists, you know, well into their career, but probably started their career young. I would say it's probably difficult to just show up one day and say, I'm a 35-year-old woman, even if you're cute. (laughs) Walk in the door with a great record and get signed. I think that is still hard in America. I think it's maybe a easier in, in other places. I'm not sure about that. but uh, and, and I'm going really off of just seeing what you're seeing, Jill, in terms of the, the, the artists that, you know, are brand new artists just coming out today, right? Because they're you know, so young. I mean, you see like teenagers. So, so yeah, if well, someone was incredibly super talented and had played, you know, places just not in the public eye, but do you think they would be, I don't want to maybe use the word discriminated against, but just purely because of age? Um, I think it's, there's some of that's in the mix. I think there's, again, I don't ever think any of these things are one thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's multiple things. Um, as you said, nowadays, There are so many places that we find talent um, that it used to be before you would send a scout out to a club and you would discover somebody that way. You might um, scout them for a while. You might scout them for months or a year and see them develop and give them tips before you even sign them. Nowadays, you know, where you look at places like TikTok and before that Vine and those places where a lot of really young people are are able to sort of show their talents. So so that's part, I think, of the young, you know, the, the demographic of, of artists who get signed, maybe getting a little younger in some instances. Um, but but again, I, I think 
look, if you're a super, super, super talented person, there's always room for that, no matter what. There is always. But is that going to be the majority? No, it will be probably the minority um, in today's world. Um, I think that as as a species, <laughs> we are evolving beyond looks and age and all of those things. But again, I think we've got a long way to come. It's just uh, the music business is no different than than a lot of businesses. But I think because there's so much ability, where well, you're looking at people all day long, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. like I mean, I, I I make the analogy a little bit when. And Jill, you'll know this because you watch probably Swedish TV shows and I watch mm-hmm. Swedish. European, yeah, yeah. And I always look at some actors in yeah. European TV or film and some of them not very good looking. Some They're of normal. Not, yeah, so yeah. Like, you and I, they look, like, they look like normal people. No makeup. and right. Exactly. Exactly. What you would expect your next door neighbor to look like or somebody who's a police chief or whatever. Um, In the US, you don't see that very often. And so that trickles down that whole thing of the people who matter the most because we're fed that up, you know, we're consuming that all day long or the the messaging. Yeah, yeah. All of those things. And so that's what we expect to see when we turn on TV or American movies. We don't Quite frankly, expect to see too many ugly people or too many old people. Now, again, I think that is changing. I think yeah. we're starting to see that happen in the film business too. So I, I, I think that we're definitely, a change is coming for sure. And I think it's coming fast. I wonder when, because it's similar, the music industry and the mu- movie industry has been run by men. I wonder when 50% women in the music industry, will that change? It's all about education. In my mind, everything's about education. People, you know, are bigots or think different ways because they just don't know any better. They're not educated enough to understand it. And I think that a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world today, people are starting to get a wake-up call, whether that's men because of the, the Me Too movement, who who are, are really good guys who are like, oh, I didn't realize doing that thing that women were offended by it. So I, I think that, Way before we get 50-50 in in any segment of the entertainment business, whether that's film or or music or whatever, I think there is an awakening happening. And I think that that will change faster than it has for all the years prior to those. So I I definitely feel change is a coming and I think it's come faster and it could be faster than it is, but I see the change personally, for sure. Yeah, yeah. If you're a woman and you want a career as a music executive, do you have any advice? Learn as much as you can about as many different parts of the business. I would credit my longevity in the business because I, it's as much about people coming to me going, well, Cynthia will know the answer to that. Um, (laughs) Or if she doesn't know the answer, she knows who will know the answer, right? And so even if you want to be an NR executive, or a marketing executive, or in music publishing, working with songwriters, whatever it is, you make a better executive if you understand different parts of the business, even within your own business. And I think that it used to be you were promotion guy, and you only knew promotion, you didn't know anything but promotion. Or you were an A&R guy, and you only dealt with artists and getting the record done. And I think in my own humble opinion, and I can only go off of myself, I've maintained my longevity and and actually changed careers somewhat along the way in my career. I started off with a very good basic knowledge of the music business because I had this, you know, 
music publishing mm-hmm. background. I had this recorded music background. I had this licensing background. I had lots of different areas, and I was curious to understand different parts of the business. So the the short answer is educate yourself in as many different parts of the business because as you go up the food chain, you do less and less of this sort of day-to-day I won't call it minutia, but the day-to-day work stuff and more and more of the high levels of strategy. And in order to be good at that, you've got to have a at least a basic knowledge of many parts of your, your business. You can't just be, I only know A&R, I only know promotion, I only know marketing. You have to have a, a more broad knowledge base, I believe, in order to be a successful executive in our business and have longevity as an executive. So music has a tremendous impact on our culture. Art not only reflects our culture, it also creates it. What can the music industry do to enhance gender equality? Um, well, lots. You know, I, I think that any entertainment entity <laughs> um, can help drive that because artists' voices matter. What you see on TV and, and the movie screen matters. What people say at a high level matters. So to come back to your original question, I think that there is now a better understanding that we can have an impact. And, you know, we've always watched artists in the past and and we've all experienced it. Like my husband with Live Aid, you know, artists get out when they need to come out, they will, they will stand up and they will use their voice. Um, Sadly, though, not everybody's doing it all the time, right? You know, it's like when there's a call to action, everybody rises to the occasion, but not all the time. And I think that just having it be a little more front and center in everybody's consciousness, whether you're an artist or an executive inside a music company or any content company is, again, it's that awakening, that knowledge that A, we have to do better and that we can do better because we have a platform to do better whether that's raising women's issues or any other issue uh, of people who've been underserved or maltreated um, along the way. And I think, again, it's all about education and awakening and then understanding that we have a a voice that's in some ways a larger voice as an artist than, than many people and that we have platforms between Netflix and television and concert stages and, and, you know, YouTube and, and, and all of those platforms to actually use them for good and and not for bad. Yeah, because you have a massive cultural reach. I mean, it's massive. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So what shifts would you like to see in the music industry? Well, I think everything that we've just talked about, Jill, I, I think the awakening happening, I feel good that there is an awakening in so many different ways in my business and just across the planet. And I think that working for a company that really is awakened. And, and, and I'm not saying that because I hope, you know, what worry that somebody at Universal is going to listen to this podcast. I <laughs> really, truly believe it. And I've been in the music business for a long time. So I, I see what this current sort of administration of Universal Music Group looks like. And there is a real belief and, and ambition to do good stuff and to use our voices and use our, our platforms to do good stuff. And so I'm really heartened by that in a way that I wouldn't have been even five years ago. I, I really think the change is coming. I would like to see it sped up. I think that would be my only criticism. Like, 
yeah, let's let's move faster yeah. as we need to. But I think it's underway. And again, I can speak mostly to my own company because I'm in there. I see the things they're doing. I know the mentorship programs they have for women inside Universal Music Group. I know the things they're doing for their staff. I know what the top brass is working towards. I know the initiatives that they're putting forward. So I feel very good about it. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do better. Every company can always do better, but I feel pretty good about my company. That's awesome. So where do you see yourself in the future, like five years from now, 20 years from now? Ooh, <laughs> wow. in my garden? No. <laughs> well, maybe 20 years from now, I think I'll be in my garden. Um, I hope I'll be in my garden 20 years um, Where do I see myself? Well, I definitely see myself trying to use my expertise and experience in the music business and marrying that with mentorship. I mean, it's exactly, I mean, I I hope that five years from now, 10 years from now, I'll still be running the mentorship program for Shields and Music because that is something I feel I can have an impact in because of my knowledge of music and because of my complete and dedicated ambition to mentor people. You know, I just love it. It makes me happy. So I see myself hopefully still mentoring women, but but the men too, but mentoring. And and I think that is so important for any of us who have any experience, whether that's life experience and or experience in a certain business, to reach back and give back, even when you're sort of out of the business. I don't lose because I'm five years out of the business, it doesn't mean I've lost the knowledge and the experience that I gained just because I'm I'm not, I hope that I would not be considered irrelevant. <laughs> I want to continue to be relevant. I want people to, to look at me personally and say that I'm still relevant. She's still got a lot to give. There's a lot of knowledge she has and there's a lot that she wants to give back and we should allow her to do that. You know, it made me think of another question. If you look back at your life, and, and look at what you've done. What would be the most important thing you feel like you've done or brought to this world? Um, if we get to the end of our life and we look back and you exactly. think, what is, what, what is the most meaningful thing I did that I brought to the world, my gift that I gave to the world? Well, I think, honestly, is my ability and and I'm I'm saying this only because I've been told this many times. I have many, many ex-employees all over the music business. Many of them are at high levels now. Some of them are not. Is is my gift to to teach um, and to mentor. I'm good at it. I like doing it, and I know I've impacted many people's lives not just in their career lives, but in their, their lives um, uh, at large, uh, because that part of me is so important to me. So I would say that my gift to, to the world, if I could say that, and certainly to the music businesses, is my ability and my passion around educating people and mentoring people, whether they're male or female. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the New Feminist Podcast. You're such an amazing, beautiful, and inspiring person. (laughs) We need more women like you. So thank you so much for being on. Well, just know that all those women are coming right behind me. We're going to make sure that they are. I love it. It Thank you so much (laughs) for having me on. This was just a pleasure. I really appreciate it.
Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. For info and links on our guests, go to our website, thenewfeminist.net, and make sure to subscribe. We always love to hear from you. If you have someone you think we should speak to, let us know. And make sure to follow on Instagram at the new feminist official. We'll be back in two weeks with a new podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Jill Sorensen. Thanks for listening. Our producers are Sienna Jackson and Jill Sorensen. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our editor is Lucy Baker Swinburne. Original music by Richard Baskin. Until our next episode, thank you for listening. You've been listening to The New Feminist, brought to you by Electrocast Media. Electrocast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So keep listening to Electrocast podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Electrocast.